I'm a regional missionary. What our state convention has done is we've divided the convention into seven different ministry regions. And we've hired in each particular region what we refer to as a regional missionary. Well, what does the regional missionary do? Well, bottom line is he's there living in that area, helping the churches and ministering to the churches. There are 120 churches that make up the southeastern region of the SBC of Virginia. My territory goes as far west as Capron, out 58, if you know where that is. Um, don't blink, you'll miss it. Uh, up to New Kent, and even includes the eastern shore, and over to Smithfield, and kind of everything kind of in between right there. And <clears throat> what do I do every day? I get out of bed. <clears throat> With the express purpose, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm struggling a little bit with the sinus stuff. Um, with the express purpose of trying to help churches strengthen their ministries. That's what I do every single day. Now, if this is a typical year in America, 700 Baptist churches, Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches will close their doors. Put a for sale sign on the front. 700 Baptist churches. Now, if you look at churches all across evangelical Christianity, then a whole lot more. You're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 churches a year that will close their doors. Places where the gospel used to be preached, they're now museums. They're now restaurants. They're gift shops. Places where the gospel used to be preached are no longer New Testament churches. We are in a crisis in the church in America. Now, um, as um, somebody that works for the state convention, that my, my regional responsibility is to look after the churches and help them to strengthen their ministries. But I also have a statewide responsibility. And the statewide responsibility is they've asked me to serve as the director of church revitalization. What does that mean? You go in and help a struggling church that's really struggling and maybe in danger of death and try to help them turn things around and get back on mission and get back to fulfilling the Great Commission. And so that's, that's another thing that I do. And so I, I, I work now with a lot of troubled churches uh, trying to help them to strengthen their ministries. And, and, you know, people don't really call me very much. My phone doesn't ring for people to say to me, hey, Reggie, I just wanted to call and tell you how great everything is at our church. No, that's typically not when the phone rings for me. The phone rings for me when it's, okay, our church is in conflict and we're already down to 40 people. And if we, if we don't get this conflict resolved, we're, we're in danger of having to close the doors for good. That's kind of the phone call that I, I will get in my responsibility these days. And, and you know, um, I'm learning more and more that when it comes to the whole issue of helping any church anywhere that's struggling, there, there's one thing to me that I think is more important than any other single factor. Because here's, here's what people typically want to look to me for. All right, Reggie, I know that you pastored two churches, and one of the churches that you pastored went from 30 to 150, and the other one went from 300 to about 600. Now tell me how you did it. What's the magic formula for making that happen? How do you go into a church that's struggling and turn, turn the thing around and get it moving in the right direction? And people want to talk to me about strategy. 
Hey, it's not about strategy, church. It's not. You know what it's about? It's about mindset. It's about thinking the right way. I want to speak to you today on this subject. Thinking like Jesus. Thinking like Jesus. Here's the problem when you've got a church that has declined or has plateaued, has experienced mission drift somewhere along the way and is no longer focused on making disciples, there's a a problem. See, all that is symptomatic of something deeper. And do you know what the deeper thing is? People in that church aren't thinking like Jesus. And listen, if the folks in your church aren't thinking like Jesus, it don't matter what your strategy is. It ain't going to work. The best strategy in the world is not going to overcome unbiblical thinking and people that just simply are not thinking like Christ. Philippians chapter 2 is the text today. I invite you to find that in your copy of the Scriptures. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures with you, there are Bibles in the pews. And we even have the pages up there that you will find this particular text of Scripture. It is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And with your Bibles open to that passage, I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of the Word of God together today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And the Word of God says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. Even the folks in hell are going to do this. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the God To the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we've already heard today that it doesn't return void. And so we're claiming that promise and standing on it. Help us to understand what you want us to hear from your word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. The mind of Christ. Now, I want to visit a couple of verses that precede what we just read, that I think give us some really good context for these verses that we just read together. Let's go all the way back to verse 1 in chapter 2. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Now, this is what Paul would typically do. The Apostle Paul, who wrote these words to the church at Philippi, he would go into a community, and when he would go into that community, he'd first of all go to the synagogue, and he'd start preaching the gospel there. It typically didn't take him very long to get thrown out. 
And so he'd get thrown out of the synagogue, and then once he's thrown out of the synagogue, he'd go house to house, or he'd go preach on the street, or anywhere that he could find somebody who would listen. And he would win folks to Jesus. And then once he won folks to Jesus, you know what would happen after that. He'd take those believers, he would disciple them and teach them, and stay with them for a season, and then he'd start a local New Testament church there. He'd bring in uh, or, or raise up somebody to be a pastor of that particular fellowship, and then he would leave and he'd go somewhere else to another town, and he would pretty much do the same thing all over again. And so that's pretty much what the Apostle Paul did. Now, a lot of the letters that we see in the New Testament are letters that Paul wrote to some of those churches that he established. And this is what Paul hated to hear. He hated to hear that a church that he established somewhere was having church drama. Now, I know you've never seen church drama before, have you? Never seen that take place in any church that you've ever been a part of. But apparently there was church drama in some of the places that the Apostle Paul, where he established churches. And so this is what he's saying in this opening two verses of chapter 2. He says, make my joy complete. Do you know nothing is more of a burden to the heart of a pastor now than than?" God's people that are supposed to be on mission for the Lord and fulfilling the Great Commission and making disciples, getting in the middle of drama. Don't, 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 don't be a drama queen. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. Don't be that lady that's constantly causing drama in the church. Now, this is one thing I've figured out after pastoring Two churches, and I've served as interim at another one. I'm currently serving as interim at another one, and I served on staff. So that makes five churches in which I've served on staff. And just about any place that you go, I'm figuring this out, that any time that there's drama, there's always one or two or three or four or five dear brothers and sisters that are all up in the middle of it. Can I get a witness? Don't, don't be that guy. And, and you know, and listen, I'm just going to say this. And he's going to listen to the tape, I guess, so he'll, Brother Carroll will hear me say it. He got here, what, 1989? 88? And it's 2015? So that's, my math isn't real good, Tim. Is that 20, 27 years? Okay. 27 years he's been the pastor here. Bless the Lord Jesus... This man deserves a congregation that won't fight with each other and be all caught up in the middle of drama. And he deserves to pastor a church where he didn't walk in, have to walk in here and put a referee shirt on and iron stuff out for you people. He'd never say that to you. So bless the Lord, I'm going to say it for him. Okay? I mean, for goodness sake. And so he says, make my joy complete. By being like-minded. Not that you're going to have the same opinion all the time. You get, you get three Baptists in the same room and you're going to have four opinions because one Baptist has two. You know, it's just kind of the way that rolls. So it's, you know, your opinions are not going to bring you together. What's going to bring you together? The, the mission is going to bring you together. And thinking the right way. Thinking the right way is going to bring you together. He says, fulfill my joy by being of one accord, one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. 
But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. For some people, the idea that somebody else might be right about something and not them is a novel idea. You've got a name and a face right now in mind. You know somebody like that that thinks they're right about everything. Nobody's right about everything except God. But esteem others better than themselves. In other words, be open to the idea that somebody else might know more about something than you do, or that somebody else's idea might be better than yours. And if we can operate in the church this way and, and, and sort of be defer to one another in Christian love, that's what a healthy body looks like. Not folks strutting around like peacocks thinking they know everything and that everybody just ought to bow down to them. Have you ever seen, you've been, how many of you ever served on a church committee? How many, just get a show of hands. You've ever served on a church committee? Any t- okay, I've served on quite a few myself along the way. And, and there's always that dude on the committee that thinks that really the purpose of the committee is only to find out what he thinks so we can do what he says because he's the one that, that, that knows everything. And it just, it just messes up the whole deal because everybody else on the committee is trying to be godly and they're trying to defer to one another. And then you got this one brother that thinks he knows everything and is arrogant and is prideful. And you just challenge him on something and what happens? Well, he starts to get nasty. He gets all tight-faced. That kind of stuff. No. Esteem others better than yourself. Let each one... Of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And if we will interact that way, then we will be of the same mind. And we will keep peace and harmony and unity within the church so that we can do what? Focus on the mission. See, that's the bottom line. Drama distracts from the mission. And when you get drama all up in the church then this is what happens. People spend all their time, effort, and energy thinking about the drama that's going on as opposed to thinking about the thing they're supposed to be focused on, which is winning lost people to Christ and making disciples out of them. Amen. No, Kelly Burris didn't tell me there was all kinds of problems in the church. That's not why I'm preaching this. <clears throat> I just know Baptists, okay? <laughs> he doesn't have to tell me, okay? <laughs> so... With those words by the Apostle Paul, he then launches into, in verse 5, Jesus as an example. Jesus is our example. When when it comes to thinking the right way, who is our example? The answer is Jesus. And if we're going to think like Jesus, then I want to share with you three things. Number one is this. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. And if we're going to think like Jesus, we have to humble ourselves as well. It says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be made equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus, who had been with God the Father in heaven for all eternity past... (laughs) 
left the glories of heaven to take on human flesh in a, in the form of a baby. Not exactly the kind of fanfare that we might think of when it comes to how a king, the king of glory, the king of the universe might invade earth. He didn't come clothed in purple and wearing a crown. No, he came in the form of a baby and was laying in a cow, an animal's feeding trough in a barn. Now, being that I am from northeastern North Carolina, when you say barn, I don't conjure up really nice thoughts. In fact, I can almost smell it now. It's, it's, it's not a real nice environment. It's certainly not a sterile environment. I don't think there's too many mamas in here that would want to sign up for that and say, oh yeah, I'll have my baby in a barn. Some of you may have had your babies in a barn. But anyhow, that wouldn't have been your first choice, I'm, I'm sure. And, and taking, the glo- taking deity and wrapping it in human flesh and voluntarily limiting himself. That's, that's what he did. He voluntarily limited himself. Did you know that Jesus had to learn to talk? That's wild, isn't it? That God had to learn how to talk as a human baby. And he had to learn how to walk. His, his mother had to take him from and stand him up. Oh, there's Jesus. Jesus took his first step. And now um, he, he had to grow up and learn and go to school. Now, Jesus was a pretty good kid. I think we, we do know that. I mean, could you imagine being Jesus' brother? I mean, uh, you know, poor James. I mean, I, I can just imagine Mary and Joseph are just like, why can't you be more like Jesus? I mean, for goodness sakes, uh, you know. But he, he did. He, he, he left the glories of heaven and limited himself. And the Bible says that he experienced all things just, just as we experience, and yet was without sin. And then you fast forward to that scene where he's on the cross. And he voluntarily submitted himself to that. Now, nothing inside of him wanted to do that. In fact, he prayed, prayed intently, prayed very hard and said, God, the Father, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? He prayed so hard that droplets of blood came into his forehead. Literally, the capillaries in his forehead began to burst. He was under such intense stress. That's how hard he was praying. Have you ever prayed that hard? I've never prayed that hard. That's how hard he was praying. Why? Because he knew what it was going to be like to bear on himself all of the sins of the world on that tree. And yet, he submitted to the whole process. He humbled Himself. Secondly, I want you to see Jesus gave up His rights. Jesus gave up His rights. You say, well, in what way? Well, the Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin. So that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And here's how it works. The way it works is Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. He was a perfect sacrifice. And so His righteousness is imputed to all of us who believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and receive Him as our personal Lord and Savior. Now, I I just want to submit to you the notion today that that ain't fair. He who knew no sin became sin. What's fair? Fair is I pay for my own sins. 
Fair is you pay for your own sins. And Jesus certainly could have had the right. He could have claimed His divine right and said, I'm not, di- I'm not going through that. I'm not down on the cross. They're not going to put nails through my hands and through my feet. There's not going to be a sword stuck in my side. I'm not going to die that excruciating death. When Jesus went to the cross, it was, it was the most excruciating death that you could possibly imagine. I mean, we lose this when we look at the cross. Sometimes we look at it, and I don't, I'm, I'm not real sure we look at it the way we should. We kind of glorify it a lot. I mean, it's, it's jewelry. You know, th- there was this guy, he was in the um, line at the food line the other day, and he had a cross around his neck, and he seemed to want to talk to me. You know, I was there to just get something Kay wanted. Uh, me to pick up at the store, one of those, I'm, you know, let me bump in and bump out real quick. I, to be honest, I wasn't in the mood to talk to anybody, but this guy strikes up a conversation with me. I see the cross around his neck and I say, Hey man, does that thing mean anything to you? And he says, uh, well, I mean, it looks pretty cool, doesn't it? I said, cool. And then this thought just came to me. I said, man, would you ever wear an electric chair around your neck on a necklace? He says, a what? I said, an electric chair. He said, what's wrong with you, man? I said, well, do you know that that cross was what they used to crucify my Savior? It was an instrument of torture. They killed him on it. And really, if you think about it, wearing a cross around your neck wouldn't be any different than wearing an electric chair. In fact, the electric chair is a whole lot more humane, if we want to put it that way, because you, and you're done, okay? Not the cross. Hours and hours of, uh, and, and this is how you eventually die if you are nailed to a cross. Eventually what happens to you is you finally get to a point where your body becomes so weak that you cannot lift up your diaphragm to draw another breath. You become so weakened after just hours and hours and hours of hanging there and ble- And the, so finally you will suffocate under your own weight. It is an excruciating way to die. And, and, and listen, you've heard it said, it, it, the nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross. What held Him there was His love for you. Why? Because it was the only way for you to get heaven and miss hell. And He loved you so much that He was willing to go to that cross And to die there and experience the excruciating death that comes along with it. So that He could take His righteousness and He could give it to you who believe. So that your names could be written in heaven. So that one day when you breathe your last breath and exit from this body that you now contain, you will be absent from your body and present with the Lord. And that's enough to even make a Baptist shout. Hallelujah. (laughs) Jesus didn't run around demanding His rights. If He had, you and I would be in a bad way. No, He gave up His rights. And if we're going to have the mind of Christ we got to get out of this notion that we're somebody and that we have rights. Hey, look, 
build a bridge and get over that. We're nobody. And then one more thing, and we'll be done and get to the house, okay? The Father exalted him. The Father exalted him. Notice with me one more time in verse 9. Therefore, since Jesus went to a death, the death of the cross, in verse 8, verse 9 says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice it says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess of those in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. What's under the earth, church? Hell. Now, I know we live in a modern era. I know that our society is full of enlightened thinkers. And I know that nobody wants to hear about hell anymore. But there is a reality, church. And the reality is, you can believe it or not believe it, but there's a hell. And if you don't believe it now, you will believe it. The Bible says that there is a place where people go who are apart from Christ. And there, there is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth. And no, hell isn't a figment of somebody's imagination. And no, your personal hell isn't right here on the earth already. There is a real place of torture and punishment that the Bible describes. That folks who die without Jesus will go forever and ever and ever. And even the people that are there, even the people that are there, one day their knee will bow and their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if they don't want to do it, they will be forced to do it. Because the Bible says every knee shall bow. Now, I don't know about you, friend, but I've made a decision. I've decided that I'm going to make that confession of my own volition. While I have a choice, I've chosen to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord over all creation, and He's Lord over me, and He's Lord over my life. And I have decided to follow Jesus. Now this is what happens. Jesus is exalted to that status. Why? Because he humbled himself. Now here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, if you exalt yourself, then you will be humbled. Why? Because the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so this is kind of how it works, biblically speaking. We can humble ourselves or God will do it for you. Now, um, you know, I love you, Mama. That's my way of saying I'm getting ready to embarrass you. 
I can remember a time or two growing up along the way when I didn't do what my mama wanted me to do. I know you can be hard for you to imagine that you that I would have ever been that kid. But it did happen along the way. <clears throat> and this is what my mama used to say to me. She said, "Boy, you can either straighten that attitude out or I'm going to straighten it out for you." <laughs> Can I get a witness? Did anybody else have one of them mamas? Okay. And this is, this is the other thing she used to say. I mean, I don't, even, I don't even understand what this means or how you do it. But she would say, boy, I'm going to jerk a knot in you. I mean, I don't know how that works. I've never seen anybody. They're, they're all, what's wrong with you? Well, mama got a hold of me. You know, I'm a little knotted up right now. Hey, we can either humble ourselves before the Lord or God will do it for us. And, and, and let me tell you, the way God's going to do it, it's, it's not going to be too pleasant. God does chastise those that He loves. And if you're His and you're His child and you exalt yourself, then God's going to bring you down. He's going to humble you. But, but, the reverse of that is also true. This is so cool. That if you humble yourself before the Lord, you know what God will do? He'll lift you up. Oh my goodness, if only our churches were full of people that weren't trying to lift themselves up. They weren't trying to be Mr. Large and in charge. They weren't trying to be somebody that thinks they know everything. That everybody just needs to listen to me. And if everybody just... You're treading on thin ice, sir, ma'am. Because if you exalt yourself, I promise you, God has His ways of humbling people and they are not pleasant experiences. But if you will humble yourself, humble yourself, then God will reach down and He will lift you up. And you know what? That's a much better spot to be. Amen? Kempsville, I'm um, so grateful to the Lord for your many, many years of fruitful ministry. And I would say this in all sincerity and all candor. If it were not for the reality that there are a lot of folks that are under the sound of my voice that have lived out these verses that I've shared from this morning and have had the mind and the attitude of Christ. There's no way that God would have done here what He has been able to do here if that were not the case. So, so hear me and hear me well. There are a lot of people that have lived these verses out over the years. I'm grateful for so many familiar faces that I see in this audience today. I have specific knowledge of ways that you have, have, have lived out these verses. But you know what? We can all do better at it, can't we? There's not a single one of us in this room today that can, can identify some area of our thinking where we don't need to think more like Jesus. Amen? Amen? And so this is what I want to do today. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to examine yourself, examine your heart. And, and, and has anything slipped in, in terms of your attitude, that does not match up with these verses today? Where, where, where you, you've not humbled yourself and given up your rights, but, but you're demanding your rights just a little bit too much and thinking more of yourself than you ought to think. 
Let the Lord deal with you today. And this is what I'm encouraging you to do. We're going we're gonna to stand and we're going to sing in just a moment and give a good old-fashioned gospel invitation just like is always done here at Kempsville Baptist Church. And the altar will be open. If there's anything in your attitude that you would say, Lord, I, I, I need to check my spirit on this or I need to check my spirit on that. You're invited to come to this altar and, and, and pray. This is what I would also do. I would challenge some of you who are leaders in this church. To come forward and say, Lord, help our leadership to have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. Lord, help all of our leaders and our workers at Kempsville Baptist Church to have the mind of Jesus. I would challenge some of you who are leaders to come to the altar during this invitation time and pray and lift that that, that prayer up before the Lord. But there's also one more group of people that I would like to talk to in this room today. I don't know if there might be somebody in this room, somebody in this room that you're not sure whether or not you're saved. You don't know whether or not if you were to die today that you would go to heaven. Listen, Jesus Christ hung on the cross at Calvary ultimately so that you could miss hell and so that you could go to heaven. And if you're not sure whether or not that's you, I'm telling you, you're hearing from a dude that sang in the choir for three years and would hear Kelly Burris preach messages like this and go, are you sure that you're saved? And, and, I would, and I'd sit there and think, well, I'm singing in the choir, you know. And then he'd say stuff like, well, if you're saved, then there will be evidence in your life. And you'll be living for Jesus not just on Sunday, but you'll be living for Jesus Monday through Saturday too. And I thought to myself, I've never lived for Jesus Monday through Saturday. At best, religion has always just been a Sunday thing for me at best. And quite frankly, most of the time when I go to church, I'm just kind of faking it. Maybe you're like I was. You attend church. Hell's going to be lying with folks that went to church. I'm not here to talk to you about going to church. I'm here to talk to you about getting saved. Surrendering your heart to Jesus. I'm not sure whether or not I've ever done that. Well, if you're not sure, this is what I would like to challenge you to do. I would like to encourage you that as we sing this song, you come up here, Tim Ziddle. Pastor Tim is going to be standing up here at the front. You take him by the hand and you say this. I want to know that I'm saved. I want to know that I'm saved. If you will do that, I promise you, God will fill in the rest of the blanks. You just take that step of faith and you come on out down this aisle. Take Tim by the hand and say, I want to know that I'm saved. Let's pray together. We'll have our invitation. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now for you to move in the hearts of people. Lord, for anybody that needs to get right with you that's a Christian, already saved, but needs to get right on some part of their attitude. They're not thinking like Jesus. They're not having the mind of Christ. I pray, Lord, that this would be a time of repentance. Maybe some of you folks need to come to the altar and pray. Lord, maybe there's others. There are leaders in this church who just feel compelled to come and, and, and pray for their church, Lord. That our church would have the mind of Christ. And maybe, Lord, there is that one person that's here today that's not sure whether or not they're saved. They don't know that if they were to die today, that they would go to heaven. I pray that you'd give them the courage to step out from where they are and come forward and take Tim by the hand and say, I want to be sure I'm saved. So, Lord, have your will and your way during this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.